0: From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: This book really gave me an appreciation for, in particular, the baking geniuses in our world who actually aren't just the ones testing a recipe but who are inventing it.
0: Hey there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine Stories Behind Cookbooks. And it's the beginning of our baking week. That's right. This week we're bringing you four all new episodes from authors behind some of our favorite classic baking books and behind some new ones, too. And we're kicking things off today with Kristen McGlory. Kristen is the creative director at Food 52, where she oversees the Genius Recipes column. We'll talk about what it takes for a recipe to get her stamp of genius in today's show, and about her latest cookbook, Genius Desserts. Now, this book follows Food52's Genius Recipes, which Kristen wrote four years after she launched her Genius Recipe column in 2011. It became a New York Times bestseller, and the latest edition is all about, you guessed it, desserts. It's packed with a 100 recipes that Kristen says will change the way you bake, and the book promises to be an indispensable guide to the most beloved and talked-about desserts of our time— You'll find recipes from Dory Greenspan's infamous World Peace Cookies, to Sunset Magazine's iconic Whole Orange Cake, to recipes for meringues and puddings and cobblers and so much more. And one reason I love this compilation so much is that so many of Kristen's genius recipes come from some of our favorite cookbook authors. To have them collected together like this for the home baker is a real, pun intended, treat. So here we go. We're about to kick things off the Salt and Spine Baking Week genius style. And we'll be back with three more baking episodes this week. So stay tuned. Let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Food 52's Kristen McGlory joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. Hi!
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course, we're really glad to have you, and we're here to talk about your latest book, Food Fifty Two Genius Desserts. But first, actually, before we jump in, I want to ask: in your bio, you say that you're always carrying a pastry in your purse or your bag with you. So I'm just curious: (laughs) do you have a pastry
1: today? Are you like? I do. You
0: do. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. So it it holds true.
1: It's funny. It's it, it probably has held. Slightly less true over the years because as I've gotten into working in food, I know that there will be sweets coming, I guess. And so I'm less, I think I'm less like in danger of being without one, (laughs) but I happen to be here in San Francisco with you and I was just at Tartine Manufactory. And so I have most of my extra morning bun
0: right for later okay i'm so glad that actually <laughs> held true so this is the second book you've done of genius recipes you did the food 52 genius recipes book and now this book which is genius desserts can you tell us a little bit about what makes a recipe a genius recipe in your mind
1: sure well the baseline that they have to hit kind of obviously i mean this may be true for every cookbook we'd hope they have to be incredibly delicious. Right. In my criteria for choosing some things for the book and for the column, always on food 52 is they have to be really, really good and be worth people's time or I'll hear about it right. <laughs> from yeah. the community. And, and nobody wants that. And I don't want to waste anybody's time. Yeah. But there does need to be also something memorable and special about them that sets them apart from any other cake or cookie or whatever in their category.
0: Sure. And that can happen in a number of ways, right? Like you write, it, it could surprise you, it could solve a problem, which I think is a really interesting factor in determining a genius recipe, or it could be innovative and help move you know, baking generally forward. So you spent a year, I think a, a year-ish testing the recipes for this book, right?
1: Yeah. It, yeah. It did break down that way. It was like every Saturday for nine or so months of the first round of testing and then just to find the recipes for the book. And okay. then a few months thereafter of retesting and changing measurements and that sort of thing.
0: And certainly I imagine that the testing of a recipe, if you're going to call it a genius recipe is obviously very important. You of course want to make sure it tastes good and meet some of these other criteria. Was the process for determining or, or generally is the process for determining a genius dessert recipe different than a genius recipe generally? Is it a little bit easier maybe to make a genius recipe for something like a soup? than it is to make a genius dessert just because of the science that goes into baking.
1: Absolutely. I suppose I should have anticipated that, but I really discovered that after the first few days of testing for this book, how different it was from the first time around with with the Genius Recipes cookbook. Because there are so many things that you can't really know until the thing is done, until the cake is out of the oven, until the custard is set. If a baking recipe doesn't work, it just pretty much flat out doesn't work. And you have to then try and reverse engineer and and try to think about what might have gone wrong. And if it was on you, if there's something you could do differently to make it work.
0: Are there things that people can do at home to sort of emulate some of that tinkering process? There are some tips I know in your book, like um, one from Alice Medridge, actually, on substituting a certain percentage of all-purpose flour for an alternative flour usually will mean your recipe is going to work.
1: Yeah, there's... It is good with, uh, for example, Alice's tip about substituting, you know, alternative flours. It is good if you're going to start fiddling with the makeup of a recipe to do it gradually yeah. to instead of just, you know, stripping out all of the all-purpose flour and swapping in spelt flour or whatever you wanted to use, a nut flour or something. There's a high risk of failure with something like that. Sure. Um, but if you do it bit by bit, you know, try... 10%, 20%. You know, a lot of people want to do things like reducing sugar or, you know, or, or fiddling with the, the flower makeup or doing a different type of sugar. There's a lot of that going on. And it, if you can do it, you know, halfway first and then keep going, you're, you're much more likely to have a successful outcome.
0: Yeah. On that note, you're someone who has paid close attention to baking for a long time. You're professionally trained. You have been observing this world of home bakers in particular for quite a while from your, I don't want to say thrown at food 52, but from (laughs) your role at food 52 in particular, are there things and you noted sort of, um, concerns about sugar that a lot of home bakers might have. Are there other things that you've seen evolve on the home baking scene in recent years that are worth noting?
1: There's always, you know, new, new trends and ingredients that people start to be more interested in. The reduced sugar thing is, is very real. The like going for whole grain flours and stuff is very real. And you start to see those too in, in cookbooks a lot of times. Like yeah. when Kim Boys' is Good to the Grain came out, that was really the sort of turning point in. When we started thinking about the benefits of alternative flowers and not just that they were a, like a sad substitution for the premium sort of baked good, that they actually could bring a lot of their own flavor and, and attributes. And if you knew how to work with them. Right. And similarly, the reduced sugar or alternative sugar cookbooks. Let's see. I think, I feel like I had something else to, to say. The throne thing. I was like, what would my throne (laughs) be? I feel like it'd be a, a giant rollerblade or something like that. <laughs> like, that's awesome. <laughs> like, like, Food 52 is so not a, um, royal hierarchy of any right. sort. It's like, you're. You know, we are there with the home cooks in our community. Right. And so I was like, what would be a good throne for me? Right.
0: Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I just imagine there's like, yeah, rolling pins and like silicone mats everywhere. And just like, you're just like hanging out in the middle of all of it and dispelling advice to home bakers everywhere.
1: Or realistically, just a really comfy office chair. That, yes. That would. That does the trick.
0: Well, that's important. Mm -hmm. You gotta have, you gotta have good Mm -hmm. support. But since we're actually talking about Food 52, let's go there for a minute. So you've built, you and the team at Food 52, uh, have built a great community of people who are home cooks, home bakers, and then your, your genius recipes and genius desserts before they were cookbooks existed on Food 52. What role did that community building create in identifying what recipes people were looking for? And then maybe relatedly, like how do you balance that with creating a cookbook that you want to sort of appeal to people of all varying skill levels, things that are easy and quick one bowl cookie recipes to something that's a little more unique and complex?
1: So yeah, when I started the column, uh, it was a couple years after the site had launched and the community had been thrumming and, and uploading all these recipes for our contests and participating in every random new idea and project we threw their way. And so when we came up With the idea for this column, we knew that having the community give input on it and send in their tips for genius recipes was going to be really critical in finding the gems that there's no way that I or anyone else could find without that community support. And without, because our, our community is full of really avid home cooks who are taking in recipes and ideas from all over the place and experiencing them in their own kitchens. So actually, when, when you were mentioning recipe testing, I'm very lucky that the recipes come to me from these already very tested and well-defined sources, but also another layer of it is that in most cases, home cooks are recommending them to me. So it's not just that it worked when it was published, but it's had a life since then that someone can vouch for that they, you know, they're like this, this recipe is the thing that my office demands I bring every Friday. They have their own connection to the recipe, too, beyond just the fact that it was successful enough to make it into a cookbook or a magazine or whatever the first time.
0: Now, are there favorite recipes of yours in Genius Desserts, or is that a loaded term to ask for a favorite?
1: No, I I mean, it is, of course. There's It's sometimes when people ask me, what one recipe should I make for my boyfriend's birthday or, and it's right. like well i'm gonna need a lot more information <laughs> yes. here like does what he like
2: chocolate
1: does he like what right. do you like baking like right. i want more than that but i do have certain recipes that have a special place in my heart for one reason or another okay um i would say one of them is martella hazan's crocante which is this two ingredient brittle yeah uh just sugar and almonds Although I shouldn't say that it's two ingredient. I keep forgetting this because there's two ingredients in the final recipe, but you do need a potato as your cooking tool, your cooking weapon. Because even though you don't need a candy thermometer to make this brittle, you basically just like heat up sugar until it's smoking dark and add in your almonds and uh, pour it out and you've got this like bubbling sticky candy happening. And the best tool to smooth it out is a potato cut in half uh, instead of even an oiled spatula. I tried doing both side by side and the potato really just nailed it interesting and that was
0: in the original recipe for Marcella to use the cut potato
1: yeah and actually that's one you know I did things a little bit differently with this book I I relied heavily on the community and actually went directly to them for specifically their genius desserts for this book you know I wanted to give them full context of why I was asking them for this but I also went to as many people as I could think of who would have strong opinions directly whether they were pastry chefs or test kitchen directors or in this case I went to Victor Hazan himself and asked what, you know, his favorite desserts of Marcella's were and he mentioned this one. So I went to look into it and then I saw the potato. Yeah. <laughs> he just told me about it because he absolutely loved it and and missed it very much since she's passed away, but right. then I noticed some of the other really special things about the recipe between not needing a candy thermometer and the potato.
0: Yeah, that's such an awesome trick. I love it. Um and I love that it was there and you sort of found it not that wasn't sort of the reason it was pitched to you, right? Yeah, vi- it was pitched because it was just delicious.
1: Yeah, Victor yeah. wasn't like, can you believe this thing that Michelle right. used a potato for? So, yeah, sometimes it's not always on the surface what is so fascinating about a recipe. But once you make it, you start to realize, which is another reason that relying Mm -hmm. on home cooks to share their experiences gets me so much further.
0: Absolutely. So we mentioned Marcella, we've mentioned several other Mm -hmm. cookbook authors, I would say most of the recipes in your book have been published elsewhere by the uh, original author of the recipe, a lot of them in cookbooks, or a lot of them coming from people who have written cookbooks. What role do you think cookbooks have played in sort of creating a set of genius recipes, and particularly since you know, you work for an online food media site now where we can log on and get a recipe in seconds at our fingertips. What role do cookbooks continue to play in sort of identifying these really standout recipes?
1: Cookbooks are definitely one of the biggest sources for genius recipes, just in that they're this somewhat timeless thing that generations of people have, have cooked from. And there's just, a, there's an attachment to them. And so, you know, when I ask, Hey, everybody, I need your help in finding the best lemon bar or XYZ. You know, a lot of people can pinpoint the place that they found theirs. And a lot of times it's cookbooks, although sometimes it's also a food magazine or a newspaper clipping or right. a church cookbook, uh, you know, a, a local community, like kind of handbound thing. But there are a number of different sources. And obviously cookbooks are one of the. The longest standing, especially for these older recipes. I I cover a variety of recipes, not just the ones that are new and could have been circulated online, but ones that could have come from 30, 40 years ago.
0: One of the other things I love about genius recipes and genius desserts are the ones that surprise us. Mm -hmm. There's a few that surprised me. The one that really stands out is the parsley cake. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I, I love that recipe. It's this vivid green cake, which is very unexpected. You know, a lot of this cookbook, it's a, I I feel very proud of the photos, but there is a lot of brown to work with in between the chocolate and caramel and all that. But it is refreshing when you turn the page and see a bright green cake. And it is uh, made with parsley and mint, which are blended into an oil. And that is the fat in the cake. And it comes from Roberta's restaurant and Katie Pete's, who was the pastry chef at the time. And it sounds like it's just kind of like wacky lark, but it really works. It's a very fresh tasting cake, which is not something that's usually not a word that people use to describe cakes usually.
0: It's awesome. I have not made it, but it, it really caught my eye, and I really want to try it. We talked a little bit about the challenge and people asking you, like, what's the one thing I should make for X occasion? Mm-hmm. But going a little broader, are there things that you... sort of staples of advice that you usually give to home bakers? Maybe things that people tend to have challenges with or tend to sort of stumble on or stumble with while they're baking at home?
1: Sure. There's, there are a lot of little things which... um Can really separate people who are confident bakers and people who are, who feel like baking is out to get them. And I tried as much as possible to get those tips into the book, whether they made sense in, you know, the text of the recipe itself or in a tip that I could pull out alongside in some things in the front matter, just like kind of rules and assumptions that people need to take with them to every recipe. But I tried to make sure that the guardrails were on sort of. Um, and certainly like watching for visual cues and smell cues and touch cues. Uh, I mean, that's really important in any recipe, but I tried really hard here to make sure that there was always some sort of visual cue and then the time was secondary. So it's you know, until a toothpick comes out with crumbs clinging and the sides have pulled away and you poke it and it springs back about 45 minutes or, you know, so that there's yeah. like the about, but I really don't want people to just stick it in for 45 minutes and then take it out and not look at a thing.
0: And that some of that is sort of trial and error too, mm-hmm. right? Like the more you bake, the more you sort of understand your own oven, the, uh, the temperature variation you might be working with and how that might affect the sort of suggested times,
1: Yeah. And if something doesn't come out quite right, I mean, it happens to all of us. And I tried to include those tips too what to do when something goes wrong and how you can sort of rebrand it and turn it into something else. And, you know, all is not lost.
0: We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Kristen McGlory, author of Food 52's Genius Desserts. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, listen up. This Saturday, December 15th, to celebrate our first ever baking week, we're hosting a cookie swap and demo event. Join us for an afternoon at the Civic Kitchen, the beautiful cooking school for home cooks and the home to Salt and Spine in the Mission District. There will be champagne and warm apple cider and so many cookies to eat, swap, and learn how to make. Of course, in addition to eating and swapping, there will be lots of demos. On on how to bake delicious cookies, including by cookbook author Jessica Battalana, Civic Kitchen Teachers, and even yours truly. And of course, you won't want to miss the cookie swap. To get in on the swap action, just bring a dozen or more home-baked cookies and then swap them for other baked goods from fellow home bakers. No time to bake? No worries. You can also purchase cookies to take home $10 per dozen. Now, tickets to the event are $10, and proceeds will benefit La Cocina, which supports low-income food entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. I hope you'll join us this Saturday for the Salt and Spine Cookie Swap in San Francisco. Get your tickets today at civickitchensf.com. And now, back to our conversation with Kristen McGlory, author of Food 52's Genius Desserts. Were there recipes that you considered for this book or your other book that just like didn't make the cut, but you wanted them to? Or was there anything you had to sort of leave on the cutting room floor when the book went to press?
1: Well, sadly, a lot had to be left because I had the happy problem of having a long time to test for this book and, so, and research and snatch up as many recipes as I could to test. And so I tested... I don't know how many I keep thinking it's close to a thousand, but I've like never been able to verify that I've tried counting okay. and I was just never organized enough, but many hundred recipes I tested right. for this book. And so inevitably for this book alone, for this a book alone close. To well, no one. one can prove a thousand, <laughs> okay. not even me, but it's, it was many hundred recipes and it yes. was a year of testing. Right. So it was, there was a lot that got left behind for so many reasons. You know, there's only so many chocolate cakes you can put in a book or only so many Dory Greenspan recipes you can put in a book and right. have it feel like a uh, cohesive full collection that's giving people a lot of different surprises and and useful recipes.
0: You mentioned Dory Greenspan Mm -hmm. and you have her world peace cookies in here, which are one of my favorite cookie recipes of all time. How do you make a, a judgment like that? Like when you're talking about cookies or when you're talking about you can only have so many chocolate cakes and you're looking at 40 that are great and that work. How does that sort of work to figure out this is the one that belongs in the genius recipe collection?
1: Well, I think that the first spots probably went to the greatest hits from the column that have had a long life, um, have had tons and tons of comments from readers verifying over and over how great the recipe is. Sure. Those were like gimmies. They, they're, they're in the book for sure. And then, and then from there, it was about building around those. And I, I did, you know, a lot of these are super iconic recipes that you, you know, you may have heard of before, but I also really wanted to find ones that hadn't been published before too. And so I tried to find other ways of finding those as well by like, um, you know, going straight to the source and asking people for their sort of undiscovered tricks.
0: Are there cookbook authors who have influenced you in particular? We've talked a lot about the authors who are included Mm -hmm. in this book. Maybe there's some overlap, of course. But who are the authors or books that have sort of influenced you most in your professional life?
1: I think from a writing perspective, Nigella Lawson, both her recipes and her writing are such joys. And her writing brings such a dimension and a personal dimension to her cookbook's that it's both relatable. It's also beautiful prose. It's also very surprising because sometimes she makes up words, but you know exactly what she means. Right. That all is very, very inspiring to me. And any author that brings that level of investment and personality to their head notes has been a big influence on me. That's That's the biggest thing. And then when it comes to like cookbook design, you may notice in the design of our books, we were pretty influenced by like um, Canal House, mm-hmm. um, the Nigel Slater books, like the the fonts and the treatments in here. It's certainly evolved since we started the Food 52 cookbooks. But when we were first sitting down with 10 Speed to think about what the design of Genius Recipes should be, those were the places that we looked that felt very timeless and usable and beautiful.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're beautiful. They're, they're clean and mm-hmm. simple and sort of a very elegant design, I would yeah. say.
1: There's not a lot of warring fonts and, right. and, and graphics and things. The visuals certainly do a lot of the heavy lifting.
0: So we always end with a game. So I thought we'd play a little game of genius desserts, literally emphasis on the genius. <laughs> um, and I'll name a few geniuses within their own sort of field and craft. And maybe you could suggest a dessert that you might serve to him or her if they were to dine with you one evening. (laughs)
2: I'll do Um, my best.
0: Okay. So we'll start with sort of the quintessential genius, I guess, Albert Einstein. By some miracle of science, he's having dinner at your apartment tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) what are you going to make for dessert for him?
1: (laughs) I think I would probably want to show him one of the more scientific of the, you know, the ones that... The genius part relies on a surprising reaction of ingredients, right? Um, that you wouldn't think would behave well together. Sure, like for example, citrus and dairy. Um, if you've ever put both in your tea at the same time, you you regret it immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because usually acid curdles dairy. That's how we end up with ricotta and other cheeses. But if you use a high enough fat, heavy cream with citrus thickens and does not curdle and can become very beautiful, creamy, luscious desserts like ice cream. Or, um, there's a 10 minute lime cracker pie in this book from Kenji. Yes. Yes. That is also relying on the interaction of dairy and citrus maybe he'd be into the crackers too. It's kind of,
0: Yeah. (laughs) that'd be intriguing yeah i feel like kenji <laughs> a good would for be him. a perfect guest at that dinner too right like if you're having albert einstein exactly you definitely invite
1: kenji exactly just in okay. terms of
0: dynamics and conversation
1: perfect yeah they could keep each other busy while i'm i don't know like <laughs> yes. bringing out the second course <laughs> right
0: awesome okay next genius we have is jane goodall primitive genius working with uh gorillas what would you serve her if she's coming over
1: Is it bad that I, the first thing I thought of was bananas? Like, is that, I don't think it's bad. I think it's, is she probably, she's probably so over bananas.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably, (laughs) probably, but maybe, maybe there's a way you can make bananas geniusy and blow her mind.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, the banana cake in this book, anyone who is at least okay with bananas is going to love the banana cake in this book because it's called Weird and Wonderful Banana Cake. It is from Lucy Cufflin, a baker and caterer in the UK, and it is made with a cup of mayonnaise instead of eggs or oil, and it makes the best texture. It's so moist and and fall apart and delicious, so I hope that she would be pleased with the weird and wonderful banana cake.
0: Yeah, I would think she would be. <laughs> How about Isaac Newton, who obviously is a scientific genius and has some connotations with shooting the apple off the head, yes. right? So maybe there's something there. So of
1: course I first went to Apple yes. because now I just associate geniuses with a single fruit. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. It's logical. <laughs> So there's a really cool apple recipe in this book from Nicole Krasinski at State Bird Provisions. Yeah. And you stick whole apples in the freezer. And then as they're defrosting, you can just squeeze all their juice out and turn it into this bright pink, very, very fresh tasting granita. And then she serves it with some creme fraiche tapioca pudding and some blackberries. And it's just this like electric, delicious dessert. Yeah. Sounds amazing. How about
0: Michelangelo, artistic mm. genius in many forms?
1: Mm-hmm. I bet he would appreciate Stella Park's pie dough mm. because it's very meticulous. A lot of pie dough recipes and, and you know, like the pie dough that, your grandma would make. It's probably, it's very intuitive. It's it's very simple once you get the intuition part down, but there's a lot that's left up to, does it feel like it's moist enough? Does it feel like the butter worked in enough or not? And yeah. there are lots of ways to go off track. If you, if you don't feel confident Stella's is totally different because it gives you exact measurements and exact motions that you need to do down to the the inches. And um, th- so I think for a, a beginning pie baker or someone who really appreciates Math. Yes. <laughs>
0: awesome. And Stella Parks, I feel like, could be on the genius list herself.
1: Totally. Maybe she'd like to join Michelangelo at dinner as well. Yes.
0: I like that we're making little guest lists, yeah. too. Okay, last one. So we're going to say Anna Wintour, fashion genius. Mm. She's coming to dinner, and you have to think about what the dessert is going to be.
1: Well, obviously, it has to be stunningly gorgeous, but tasteful. Ottolenghi's Meringues, maybe. Okay. Because they... These are the rosewater ones? Yeah, rosewater and pistachio. But just simply the fact that they're these giant billowing meringues and they're... I was very surprised to learn that when his shop was first getting popular in London, people would say, oh, it's the place with the meringues. Like, have you heard of Langi? Hmm. It's the place with the meringues towering in the window. Interesting. Yeah, which we think of him so much for his, like, glorious vegetable dishes now. Right, right. So I feel like between the, the fashionability of the meringues in the window and how elegant they look and how delicious they are and how light and airy they are, I hope she'd appreciate them.
0: I think she would. Awesome. Well, this was super fun. I hope that I get an invite to one of these dinners because these all sound incredible. Um, but thank You're you. You're so on the much. list for all of them. Okay, great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been super fun. And we're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault.
2: Hi, Celia. Hi, Brian.
0: So we just talked to Kristen from Food52 about her latest book, Genius Desserts, and I'm hoping you have something to share with us.
2: Well, sure. Great. I mean, I, I love desserts, first of all. Yes, who, who doesn't? <laughs> um, but I oftentimes am suspicious of cookbooks that come from websites. Okay. Uh, they they can be hit or miss, and oftentimes uh, websites are not sort of checked as carefully, edited as carefully tested as carefully right Um, a couple of exceptions to those are the martha stewart books which are very very well tested yeah the america's test kitchen which also has you know both of those are tv shows as well as websites and food 52 i have to say everything that we cook from there has been marvelous and come out perfectly i also feel like while there are so many baking books out there there aren't too many dessert books that cover a lot of different kinds of desserts. Sure, Um, David Leibovitz has his um, Ready for Dessert, which is great and combines three of his older books uh, that are all about every kind of dessert you can make, including ice cream. Right. Um, But so often you get, you know, either a book on cookies or a book on brownies, a book on um, ice cream, but they're not all together in, in a book or a book on baking. This isn't all about baking either, which is really nice. So it's a great one to... To just have for I don't know company coming over or whatever that you can if you're a terrible baker basically which I am <laughs> because I'm very bad at following directions uh, this is a, this is a great book for
0: me right and so great too because I think people are very particular about their desserts some people are big chocolate lovers and some people really don't like chocolate and prefer something baked or fruity and so having a book that really gives you a lot of dessert
2: options is really really nice yeah and it's a nice big book too yeah. so I've already um, you know, been sold out of the couple copies that I had and had to reorder it.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Of
2: course, my pleasure.
0: And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Genius Desserts, the Cacio e Pepe Shortbread by food writer Charlotte Druckmann and the Chocolate Cloud Cake by the beloved late cooking teacher Richard Sachs. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks as always to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again this week with more stories behind the baking books you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
2: Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now, but if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen.
0: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.